Today I'm joined by a man fast gaining a reputation as a contemporary recruitment talent development specialist in an industry of skill set evolution. With an advisor and L&D career that includes positions with the EY and Venn Group, my guest now helps businesses develop the winning skills, mindset and habits required for the modern market. A thoughtful, measured and insightful individual, his outlook on the recruitment sector is both real and refreshing. Today, I welcome Mr. Ben Browning. Hi there, Ben. How are you? Simon, yeah, very well, thanks. Very well. Uh, just got back actually from a face-to-face -face client meeting, the third one I've done in the last couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, feeling uh, feeling really good for getting in front of uh, getting in front of a few people. How are you? Yeah, I, I, I'm not too bad. I'm still waiting for that moment. Well, actually, I I, I go out with. Um, one of my colleagues into London once a week, but we talk business. I haven't actually had a, a meeting outside of that, uh, just yeah. as yet outside of our own thing. So how, how does that feel after, do you have any anxiety around it or? Yeah, I mean, do you know, I didn't actually have any anxiety about it from um, from the pandemic perspective or, or, or anything like that, but it is funny. It is funny having had basically a year off of face-to-face -face meetings. So, you know, I think I've had a handful in that period. Um, and yeah, just getting back, getting getting used to being face to face with people again is um, is an interesting thing. But it's, uh, it's there's nothing like it. You know, we spent two hours today. We hashed out a really nice overview of the competency framework they're going to take forward. And it's um, yeah, it's it's just awesome to be to be back face to face with clients. So this is interesting, right? For somebody that works in the environment that you do, which is you know recruitment agency centric, very high octane, I should imagine in in most instances where you know the dna of you and me and the people that we work with collectively as in recruitment agency leaders and, and owners is is all about the you know the the, the chase the relentlessness the you know, that's kind of part of why we do what we do mm. how has that worked for you over the last sort of 12 months and and uh, sort of pandemic have you how have you viewed that time where you you thought you were forced to take a step back and stop and look around you and not go on that train. How's that made you feel? Yeah, uh, speaking quite openly, like the first four months, I really struggled. I really struggled for a couple of reasons. Um, I'm an extrovert. I take my energy from working with people massively and didn't realize just how much until this year. Um, taking that away was, was, was really difficult. Um, I was furloughed from the, from the job that I was working in. Uh, and the communication around that was, was 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 perhaps less than it otherwise might have been. No one knew how to deal with that situation, but I didn't get very much communication from the business, so I felt quite isolated. And it really impacted my mental health. You know, I, I mean, I, I definitely suffered with with depression for a good part of the early the first half of last year, and it took it took launching my own business and setting up and having a real purpose and a real focus and drive to kind of kick out of that. But it's still, you know, it still comes up. It still comes up. And running your own business is 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 pretty isolating. Um, and doing your own thing is pretty isolating. And even with, you know, consultants and businesses that I'm working with over Zoom, there's just still nothing like it for that face-to-face -face interaction. So I'm, you know, pers on a personal level, on a business level, on a productivity level, um, yeah, very excited about, the kind of the, the increased unlocking over the next sort of six months or a few months, hopefully, but I'm getting to an end point of that by the end of the six months. 
Yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, to to touch on the um, you know, the, the word depression that you um, that you use, I wasn't necessarily expecting either. Um, if I'm being completely honest, but you know, at the time of recording this, we're in Mental Health Awareness Week, so it'd be rather remiss not to delve slightly into that. Um, and my question really around that is how you've coped with that, because you are 100 percent correct. Uh, you know, and I'm in, in, in entirely the same situation as you running a business on my own and it's a small enterprise, you know, and it's independent and there is no real obvious accountability. Um, mm. And I, I find that often quite quite a tricky thing to, to navigate. But in terms of how you coped during that early stages with the furlough and setting up in, a, you know, in, in difficult circumstances, how did you overcome that? Yeah, um, you know, I think anyone who's been through that experience knows that there's not like a, there's not an answer to that question, if you know what I mean. You kind of every take every day on its merits. Um, and some days I would put my hands up and say I didn't deal with it particularly well which puts a strain on the family and all the rest of it. But actually, I think coming out of it, like, I knew straight away as soon as I'd made the decision to, to build the business, I wanted a coach. I wanted that external accountability and to get somebody involved. That was absolutely critical for me. Um, I think the progress that I made would have been, you know, it's easy to go in circles when you're launching something and, and, and all the rest of it. And actually having someone to hold you account to launching that MVP and just get, getting something out the door was for me, the bit that the bit that made the difference, um, and I think structure. You know, since since about October, November time, I've been working um, with a buddy on a uh, on a ninety day sprint basis on a, on a, on a model um, taken from a book called the Twelve Week Year, and that's got so much productivity and accountability stuff in it in terms of tools you can use, really practical stuff. I've now shared it with. As I say, my buddy, um, a guy from within the recruitment industry, a guy called John Brooks, who I know you're aware of and, and other people listening to this might also be, um, but also introduced it to, to many of the clients I'm working with. And they've found that it's it's a great productivity tool, but it's a great focusing tool and it really helps with discipline. And, and actually for me, so for me, that, that the answer is yes, it's accountability. Having someone external, but having an internal process to follow have both been what have kept me able to turn up each day and, and, and push through some, some, some difficult times. And I think there, uh, Ben, the key word for me that you that use outside of accountability is also focus. Mm. Um, and, and those two things go hand in hand, don't they? And, and there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that having a coach um, along with alongside you for that journey will keep you if they're if they're the right person for you they'll keep you focused and I, it's been very difficult I think and again I'll, I'll bring that back to myself that the last uh, the last 12 months have been very difficult to keep the focus even though I work with purpose and even though I have some really core values um, I found it difficult to retain that focus on a daily basis. And, and you know, eye on the prize is the, is the expression, isn't it? And it's because there's been so many things, been a compobulation of different things going around. And that, and that doesn't help your, your mental state when you constantly have stuff. And I find that it's stuff that I know I've constantly got to do. I've constantly got something going on in my head. And it, it's a subconscious thing. I don't necessarily know what that is either. I'm just carrying around that thing with me everywhere I go. And so only when I end up doing it, I go, oh, that's what it was. Oh, no, it wasn't. There's something else as well. Um, and that's because there's no direct focus, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And you know what? This is one of the things that I work with recruiters on so much is um, is that consistency piece. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's dull in some ways, like this idea of just having a process that you stick to and you refine and you get better. But actually, it's also really, I think it can be really liberating for the right kinds of people. It can be really liberating. And I, I talk about, um, I know you had uh, Mike Watman on the um, on the podcast a little while ago. and you know, he clearly, I mean, the reason I mentioned him is like that world of elite sports, that world of development, that world of you have a process, you follow it. It's about performance improvement. It's about doing a few things better than anybody else around you. Um, and because of the demands of the recruitment world, because typically most people, even if you're in a 180 role, not a 360, even if you're in a 180 role, you still have got a really wide spread of stuff you've got to be good at working out what really drives your success and nailing that and and being rigorous and focused on that day in day out being accountable for the choices that you make that take you away from that um to me that that benefits everybody you know it it, it, it has real impact because it, it, consistency can also be structure mm. again entrepreneurial spirit would suggest that structure and organization and consistency aren't really they're they're almost the antipathy of of the individual that that would look at being an independent you know business owner um but i also despite it sounding like a juxtaposition i also see how liberating that is because having all of that in place and knowing what you know that that not necessarily automation but everything you know is going through a process allows you to go and do that spontaneous stuff that is the bit that maybe maybe gets you going turns you on a little bit more um so do you have when you go and you you know you speak with your clients and you're and you're amongst it is that like the cornerstone the bedrock and the sort of the foundation of where you start it can be yeah yeah i mean actually i think you'll like this one of the things that i really start with is is a vision piece and it's about working with consultants or business owners and saying okay where do you want to get to what does this look like in 6 12 18 months 3 years like lots of people will talk about I'm working towards an exit or I don't want this to be a lifestyle business anymore or I do want this to be a lifestyle business I just want it to be easier but then we start actually envisaging why they want that and what that actually means to them and it's so much easier then to go right well it makes sense that I build a process that helps me get from point A to point B because I really want to get there. And if I continue to just sort of chase purple squirrels or, or, you know, kind of get distracted by things going on around me, my route from A to B is going to be longer than it needs. Now, that isn't to say that you're going to, as you, I think, rightly point out, once you've got a process, once you've got something you're following, that allows for development, that allows for evolution. You know, it allows you to go, right, I've got my telephone prospecting. I know how my sales process works, my business development process works for clients in terms of picking up the phone. But how now am I automating my messaging to sit alongside that? How am I making that a cohesive approach? How am I using different tools in my tech stack to, to amplify what I'm doing? Um, and, and that, for me, is, is an example. You get a core process, you build it out, and then, you, then you, as you say, you get to play with other stuff that gets you to where you want to be faster. But it starts actually with that vision of where do you want to get to, which helps limit distraction. So what are, what are you seeing now um, in, in 
is there a difference between the the people that you're working with now and the people that you were either working with or 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 knew in industry pre the pandemic and i don't necessarily want this to be a you know a, a, an episode all about what's changed since the pandemic but yeah. but there must be some core differences that you're seeing that elite what high performing individuals and those that you could look at and go you're going to be a success mm -hmm. what they're putting in place now that perhaps they might not have thought about doing before they're almost forced to do it yeah absolutely well the good news is that almost everyone i'm speaking to and perhaps they're speaking to me because of this um doesn't want their business to look exactly the same as it did in january of last year again right they realize that actually there's a huge opportunity to do things better different and and to build on that a lot of that is about getting paid what they deserve to be getting paid um that might be client investment in terms of actually increasing their prices again have a chat with john brooks if that's on your radar um it it might be though around securing some retained um some recurring or retained revenue which lots of people are invested in and john and i are working on a uh, an academy to, to help people gain the confidence to do that um but it is also about multi-channel it's about understanding right we've got this linkedin stuff that we're doing we might touch on that um we've got some we've got some linkedin we've got some stuff people are talking to us about email people are harder and harder to get on the phone but until now that's all been a little bit randomized and maybe they're not sure they're getting the roi what i'm speaking to them most about is bringing those three things together in a strategy and going right let's look at what a commitment map looks for you in terms of how you develop a client and then look at how these three channels can help you get through each of those commitment phases so that whether or not they're recruiting you can still put in an sla with them you can still put in an agreement of how you will work together so when they do need to hire you're the person they call because you're the person they've got most trust and most confidence in and most clarity over what you're going to deliver um and that a lot of that is quite new a lot of that is quite new for a lot of the people that we're talking to and i imagine a lot of that starts with the mindset because it is, and I don't think it's too much of a broad stroke stereotype to suggest that most of the people in our profession are uh, in some regard impatient. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you say a 90 day sprint. And again, I think that's an oxymoron because it's not. <laughs> Yeah. there's nothing around 90 days that seems like a sprint to me um however in the scheme of life and the scheme of what we do across what is generally speaking four quarters of the year the way that we plan our business models right actually it's a, th it's, a it's a quarter of the year which doesn't sound too too bad but this mm. is about building an ongoing per program that's that's fit for purpose irrespective of, of what's going on around us so how how do you how do you get a you know a, a business leader to buy into a inverted commas 90 day sprint um but but also keep them engaged when there's not an obvious immediate pound note at the end of it yeah it's a great question and to be honest the people i work with the people that i do engage with you know the way i do it is i start by being really candid and sharing that there are between three and five reasons why most of the recruitment training that a lot of people have invested in the past may not have worked if that's their situation they may have hit on the secret recipe and it's not so much of a secret 
But there are key reasons why training sounds like a great idea, but doesn't transpire to great results. And a lot of that, some of that is around, I mean, some of that is around patience, some of that around investment, but actually often it's because training is seen as a thing you do rather than like a mindset or a cultural piece. Um, the best way I describe it is we've all worked with consultants who know what they should be doing, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're doing it. So if you're investing in training, if you're investing in a relationship with a trainer because you want that person to tell your consultants what to do or tell you what to do, you're only really getting 20% of the check, you know, the potential behavior change that you that you really need. And, and so it's about habit formation. It's about doing stuff that is more embedded. It's about really taking those skills and then and then mastering them. Um, and that once you start having that dialogue with people, you say, look, you can spend this money on this. And I can in in twenty percent of situations it will work, or you can spend a little bit more time on a broader process, really embedding those skills, and in eighty percent of situations that will work. So it's re- then it's really on on the client or on what outcome they're really looking to achieve. You know, sometimes training is bought as a um, it's it's like it's like the old kind of idea of a table tennis table. We, we, want to, we want to retain our staff. What are we going to do? You're going to stick them on training course. We're going to buy a table center table. It's kind of that's year, you know. If that's if that's the dialogue, if that's the conversation that's going on, I'm probably not going to get a seat at that table. But if the conversation is, we believe that we don't get as much value out of our clients as we could. We find that we don't get as paid for as much of our work as we'd like to, and we're not sure what our clients would pay us more for then we can start talking about how we build a strategy to, to turn that around. Because then, you know, that analogy of the table tennis table, um, I've not really thought of it in the way that you described it, actually, but, you know, you'd have to go back many years where that was the that was the golden goose, wasn't it? Right, that's it. No one's, <laughs> no one's ever leaving this business. Uh, we'll be turning it away at the door <laughs> for, yeah. for people wanting to join us. Now, obviously, if, despite any circumstances, that was kind of a waning thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting now, retention. And we are, you know, as we record this, which is in May, you know, 2021, I've never known an industry so bereft of talent. Um, mm-hmm. Or let me let me rephrase that before I get slated. I've never known an industry so bereft of, of available talent to join companies that would seem are now looking to scale up personnel-wise as, as well as everything else. And I just can't believe, I just don't, I would never have thought six months ago we would be in what seems to be a bit of a muddle in terms of hiring these people. So if you can't hire them at the moment, and absolutely it's critical to retain them, or maybe the reason why you can't hire them is because companies have got such a good retention strategy, I don't know. But in your in your experience of what you're seeing now, what, what are great business leaders, recruitment agency owners and, and MDs doing that is preventing these people to, you know, looking at another opportunity, potentially joining what has become by the, the biggest bandwagon of startups I've ever seen in this sector. Um, what 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 what's, what retention strategy is working? Yeah, I think again it comes down to clarity, and it comes back to vision. I guess there are a few things: vision and communication, absolutely essential. So, do your consultants know what they're working towards? Do they know what almost it's not so much about being the top biller anymore. It's about being hyper-efficient. Do they know what a high performer 
is? Do they know how they, do they believe that they can reach that goal? Do they believe they can become high performers? Do they know what it would mean to them in their lives to be a high performer? And do they see a connectivity between what they're being asked to do on a daily basis and what that high performance piece looks like? Like if I think, so for example, if I think about the people that really inspired me, in my journey as a recruiter, I'd look around at top billing consultants and they were consistently getting away without doing any of their KPIs, but were billing loads of money. And then I'm getting beaten up about not hitting my KPIs and thinking, wait a minute, I want to be like that person. So how's where's this journey from? Oh, that's okay. They don't need to do that because they're billing. All right, cool. But then why am I why am I getting, you know, how is that, how how does what you're asking me? to do today, take me on the journey to that point. And where that was missing, and where that is missing, you get a problem. So it's around it's around communicating that vision. But then also, bloody hell, like the last year has been massively uncertain. And for everybody, like we talk about VUCA environments, volatile, uncertain, uh, I can't remember the two, um, but it's been chaotic and so, you know the, the ability to say this is where we are this is where we go and this is what happens next this is why we're looking at this strategy this is why we're developing this way not flip-flopping but being consistent and, and clearly communicating never never more important than than right now it's interesting that that point around outcomes right um because i was that person that you hated that <laughs> was bottom of the KPI charts every single week, every mm -hmm. single month. And yet I'd be the one in those days that would get taken to Vegas or Marbella as it was in the time, right? <laughs> yeah. And no doubt, now I've heard what you just said, I was probably disliked more than I thought I was <laughs> in, my, <laughs> in my business. I don't believe, I don't believe that's true, sorry. But, but do you know the reason why, I, if that were to be the case, right? And how I can see where people look at it. And that's because if I think back, Nobody ever communicated that. That wasn't the way that it was. It was, you had to make 100 phone calls. You had to get in three new bits of business. You had to find 10 different candidates and put them on or, or not put them on, in, as the case might be, the, the, the CRM, such mm -hmm. as it was when I started recruitment. Um, but had somebody said, it's not about the KPIs, it's about the outcome. It's about what you actually achieve at the end of the week in terms of whatever that might be, whether it's a, you must get 10... 10 companies on, on, on the CRM, for example. Now, if that takes you 10 phone calls, brilliant. If it takes you 100 phone calls, it's taking 100 phone calls, but the outcome's still the same. But if that message was clearer, then maybe people, you know, we, you and I might not have looked at what we were doing as differently in our respective time, if that makes sense. Yeah, I do. I do think that makes sense. I think, though, that there is... The other thing that I've seen and I'm really cautious about is I've seen this whole piece around... Um, a few, I think a few years ago, and certainly for the progressive leaders that I work with now, there was this real KPI bashing. There was this real idea that we're, we, you know, so many, so many businesses set up in the last five years, let's say, maybe even 10, are like, we're not a KPI environment. We're not a salesy kind of business. And it's like, right, okay. But when you talk to your consultants about how they develop and how they get better and how they practice and how they get to as you say where where you were 
How are you sharing data that they can own, that they can track their own success against? Do they understand, for example, their ratio of booking Zoom meetings to how many, how, how many Zoom meetings they have to ask for with a client before they get one? And do they then have a technique or are they looking at their, the elements of their technique that will improve that? Do they know, for example, um, how when they're doing a cold call that the next step in that, call, that that sales process should be a discovery conversation and how good are they at converting from a cold introduction to a discovery conversation like what's their ratio there and i think the problem is if we demonize kpis then people start taking a step back from data and the moment you start taking a step back from data everything gets done on gut feel and that leaves particularly a junior consultant or somebody with without the requisite experience to really direct themselves without direction it increases the ambiguity at least data gives you some certainty about where you are and whether you're doing better this week than you were before so i encourage people to develop their processes but you only know you're doing that if you're as you say if you're tracking those outcomes if you're looking at input and outcome measures yeah like, and, and here's the thing is um it's an evolution of what what you just mentioned there, which I, which I do totally agree. I think it's a stigma attached to KPIs as well. I think KPI instantly means a hundred phone calls a day to many people. Now I'm mm -hmm. saying that let's say you know I've been in the industry for for twenty years or so, so that's that not not I find it a stigma, but that's how I could see people. That is the attachment that I have to what a KPI means. It's yeah. figures, it's numbers. Um, that must be achieved, whatever those numbers might look like. And it was about 100 phone calls a day when when I started. Yeah. And when you think about that now, I mean, that's just ludicrous. When we were at a call centre, mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's basically what it was. And I I don't even think I did that in a month. Um, but <clears throat> when you're then, and it's, this is my next point, and I, and I think it's a really, really relevant point for leadership, particularly now, Ben, and I'd love your advice on this and on your, on your thoughts. You probably know I've got a real thing about Gen Zers, right? Or mm. Gen Zoomers, as somebody said to me the other day, which I have uh, not <laughs> heard before. Quite good, isn't it? Right. Um, and if you said KPIs to them and mm. their attachment to that was sales, mm -hmm. you'd have lost them, most of them, I should say, or at least the ones that I know from the absolute start. And you might have lost some really good people and you might not have really meant KPIs. So you actually just got it wrong from the start. But you said there about we're not a sales environment. That's how some people are are selling mm. it. Um, as uh, ironically, as not a sales environment. Um, but Gen Zers don't want that. They don't want that. Most of them. They want an environment which is all based around purpose and you know values and and, and and that kind of thing. Which does it lend itself to that KPI environment? What what do we need to do? Do we need to find the the, the Gen the Gen Zoomers that? are interested in what we're trying to do or do we need to modify our culture to accommodate them or is there a happy medium somewhere if i think about the questions you've framed it it kind of positions sales and purpose as a bit of a dichotomy there's almost you're either a salesy organization or you're a purpose-driven organization i i think that that is classic classically or classic recruiter thinking. Um, I was talking to Wendy McDougall at Firefish the other day and saying, I think evolutionary, kind of recruitment went on an evolutionary journey and there was a fork in the evolutionary journey of recruiters. Um, contingent recruiters took the left fork, the, the low road, if you like, which 
said, we're going to use this technique, this sales technique, which is foot in the door. We're going to try and get our client to give us a little bit of commitment, and then we're going to expand the account. Then we're going to, we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to prove how good we are because once they give us an opportunity, we'll show them all the things we can do. Right? Interesting. The right hand fork was taken by executive search firms who went, we're going to be bloody expensive. We're going to be very specific about who and what we work with and what we work on. And we are going to own that part of the market. And if people don't want to work with us, sod it. That's that's up to them, right? It's really interesting to me that those two tranches, it's almost like the contingent recruitment world believes that that foot in the door model is the only way to sell. I kind of think differently. I, I, I talked about this a little bit, uh, well, quite frequently recently, but talked about selling or offering retained solutions. First thing I do with a consultant or a business is sit down and say, right, what do you do for your clients? Everything. Let's get it all out on paper. And we list it and we get big white sheets and they're stuck on boardroom walls or will be when we're back face to face. And then I say, great. Do you still, when you see all that on the wall, do you still think that it's too much to ask to get paid for 25%? The 25% of the work you do when you're searching for candidates, when you're sourcing them, when you're conveying the, um, the, the message about the role to the market, when you're advertising, when you're spending all those hours going through LinkedIn and job boards, do you still think it is unjustifiable to ask for 25% of what your client's going to pay you anyway up front? And actually, typically what we get to is a point that when you see it all on the wall and you think about everything you do as a contingent recruiter and all the stuff you don't get paid for, you realize that you don't get paid enough and you don't get paid soon enough and you don't get paid in the right kind of ways. So what, we do, what we're going to do then is we're going to take that into our purpose and we say we build a sales process which says our job, we specialize in helping people like you get better results every single time they hire. And this is how we go about that process. We remove bias. We help you with remote processes. We source candidates, but we provide you with a map and we provide you with the data around the people we've looked at. We consult you on the size of your candidate pool so that rather than giving somebody a brief and then expecting candidates and being disappointed when they turn up empty handed, you know exactly what to expect from the outset. And for me, when your consultants know that they create that much value for your clients, that becomes their purpose, which for me brings those two elements together of sales and purpose. And actually, I'm excited about picking up the phone to tell people about the work I do when I know firsthand it has a positive impact on those individuals. And I think you've put that as succinctly as I've ever heard. Um, and I think you've done a fantastic, it's such a great way to look at it. But all of that, or underpinning that, I should say, and right in the hub of it, mm -hmm. is mindset, isn't it? And anything that is deviating from something that in, in many instances has been done forever, uh, it's been done forever contingency, I mean, in, in our yeah. sector. But equally, most people by default then have also done that. And there are a few exceptions where companies, they, they talk about it from the, the day you join, but they're, they're the anomaly rather than the rule. Um, it's a mindset shift, isn't it? Not just a practicality, it is switching that mind. So what is, is there an individual, right? Let's see if I could, let's play a bit of devil's advocate. 
Yeah. Are there individuals, or what is the, let me rephrase that, is what is the mindset of an individual? What do they need to have in order to switch that in their head where I'm going to stop doing what I've traditionally done, which in main has actually worked, mm -hmm. I'm a bit fed up with it. So it's not like it's broken. It has mm -hmm. actually worked, but that could be better. I know it could be better, but I can't quite get there. What, what, what does someone need to have in order to switch that in their brain? Feedback. They need to have feedback. They need to have a process. How many recruiters do you know? What percentage do you reckon of the industry have a robust, systematic process where post working on a job, they go back to their clients and say, I told you at the start of the process that my job is to help you get better results every time you recruit. We've worked on this role. And now I'd like to know from you, how did working with us compare to your expectations? What was the impact on you, your team, your business of this piece of recruitment? And just out of interest, how do you feel about the job we did? Are you asking me to put... <laughs> like, you're throwing it back to me now. I appreciate it's that. Low, right? Well, well yeah. I would say, well, I can't think of any. And that isn't to say there aren't any that I do know that are. I can't yeah. think of any. Of the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not something we talk about loads either, right? But imagine this. Imagine you brought in a consultant to your business and you said, right, first weeks, like you can spec out candidates if you want, fine. But actually, what I really want you to do is shadow a couple of our consultants on these calls where they're going and talking to their clients about how we compare to their expectations, what the impact was on their business and how they felt about working with us. End of two weeks, your new consultant's been on 20 calls and they've heard firsthand what a client likes, what they don't like, how you compare, what their expectations were, what the impact has been on the business. Your consultant's then picking up the phone, saying to people, you know, getting into conversations, the client, the, the prospect is saying, well, you're just a recruiter, like you're just all, the same as all the rest, aren't you? And consultant says, well, look, don't take it from me, but I've, you know, I've, I've been on calls with 20 of our clients and people we haven't filled roles with, people we have filled roles with over the last two weeks. And actually the things that they say most commonly about us are A, B and C. And actually, if you'd like, I'd be happy to put you in contact with them. I think, um, and this is such a massive topic, right? It's a subject in itself um, and not one for nearing the end of a podcast <laughs> <laughs> session. Somebody said to me that they approached their client about switching out into a, a retained mm. model, right? And they basically said, and the, and the benefit of that is, is you know, exclusivity. And the client said, well, where's the benefit of that to me? Don't recruiters work harder when they know they're up against their competition? Which, when I read it, I had to reread it because I couldn't quite work out whether or not that what had been sent was written in the right way. And I thought, no, that is actually what they meant. So a client has said, I thought recruiters worked harder and what with more gusto because mm -hmm. they're in competition with maybe two or three others. And I just couldn't understand where the mentality around that was. Can you explain that? What am I missing? <laughs> am I missing anything? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, you're right. It's a really interesting thing. But, you're, but it's also absolutely true. It's both true that clients think it because they're paying one fee. They've got four people involved. They know that recruiters are money hungry. So surely they're working hard with that money. Then there's the view from the industry. Lots of people in the industry will say, no, that's not how it works. If a client works with lots of recruiters say, 
if the role is contingent, we don't work it as hard. Reality is lots of recruiters really do, really do. Um, not, not as, they don't necessarily work it as well, but they do work it as hard in terms of trying to get speed to results. That race to place thing is, is, is rife in, in certain businesses and certain industries. So yeah, it's, I understand the client's thinking, if I were recruiting, I'd probably tell the recruiters, I've got three of you working on it, but actually I'd probably only use one. I'd just tell them they were in competition. So they, you know, keep them keen, right? But it's not the right way to go about it, but I understand why clients say that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an indictment really, isn't it? And not a particularly favorable one when that is, I mean, that has just been born out of years and years of um, the way that we've we, we've tended to work, haven't we? Um, well, look, I mean, this isn't a, um, a conversation necessarily based around the, you know, retained, um, retained business, but it is about mindset. And that mindset is what, you know, is really what we're interested in from a leadership uh, perspective. But what you just said there highlights another point earlier, highlights another point about shadowing people, you know, someone coming along, your juniors coming along and seeing how you work it. Absolutely, and and I know you can you can accentuate this point as much as we like. But how would that work when everybody's now doing, say, they everyone's doing, most people would like to do, so the steps to two maybe three days from home, and um, that lessens the opportunity for us to have those experiences that you presumably have had. I definitely have had where you are picking up that information subconsciously. You are learning on the job. That's got to be preventative, hasn't it? How, how are people you're working with, leaders of businesses, looking to, to adapt to that? Yeah, I think it, yes, there are limitations. It also presents a huge opportunity. You know, if I was doing a feedback, if I'm, if, when I'm training consultants to take feedback, I tell them to get on Zoom. It's much easier for two of you to jump on a Zoom meeting with a client than it is almost for two of you to be out of the office for a day to go and meet somebody, right? So you get some benefits there. I also think that Zoom gives us a much better, or, or remote meetings give us a much better opportunity to schedule stuff with clients, like schedule process updates, schedule presentation of CVs, schedule, you know, just basically every part of the process with a great deal, a greater amount of agility. You don't have to, you can be you can be face to face with your client now instantly. You know, there are people who are flipping sales calls. They're on the phone and they're like, are you, are you sitting in front of your computer? Why don't we just, why don't I just send you a Zoom link and we can just do this face-to-face -face right now? It's like, so there are, there are definitely upsides to it. Um, I think most recruiters will probably be in the, back in the office, as you say, at least two days. Um, the, for those that don't go that route, we come back to having a clear, compelling vision and having really clear communication as being again absolutely essential parts of that journey okay well look i'd like we're nearing the end so i'm gonna throw a couple of questions at you the first one you don't know the, you don't know these questions either because i am um, <laughs> i was tardy enough not to <laughs> but maybe they'll be more authentic as a result of it um what, what three characteristics are uh, uh, non-negotiable in your in your world for people working with you what what three traits in terms of a leadership um you know element do you absolutely swear by and they must have yeah um 
It's a difficult question. It is the first time I've heard it, and it's a difficult question. Uh, but a gross mindset is clearly part of that journey. You know, I, I, I offer talent development. And the first part of that is people have to be prepared to, uh, to, to develop, to accept that there are things that they don't know currently that could help them improve, whether they be a top bowler, whether they be a new recruiter, whether they be new in setting up their business, whatever that might look like. Um, I think also a very high focus on progress over perfection very similar to to growth mindset but that idea that you build a process and then you work towards progress um and the other thing i, I think is really really key is that they're able to accept and understand the value that they have and and also it's through that being able to put themselves in in other people's shoes so it's empathy i think is probably the the biggest driver and that's not necessarily saying that i wouldn't work with somebody without those things they're not necessarily um non-negotiables but they are the traits that i look for when i think when i get excited about working with a business or an individual those are the things that you know make me think yeah we can achieve really great things and from what you're seeing now um and the clients you're working with how how um how optimistic are you about our, our sector i've not asked this question to anybody um actually and i, and I don't know why i haven't because it's quite pertinent isn't it because you know our, our sector let's use that word um resilience right um as much as i'm growing out of love for that word it's still it's still i think it's overused i think i i'm just trying to foresee let, let's be you know let, let's be soothsayers for the moment and try and predict um two years down the track you know mm -hmm. I read today that the economy dropped by 1.3% or something over, over the, um, unsurprisingly, of course, over the last six months or so. But we have bounced back in the main as a mm -hmm. sector. If, you, if you're a leader of a business now, what will you be looking to do from a, 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 a maybe a, yeah, what will you be looking to do to ensure that your business is thriving in two years' time? Well, as you said earlier, it's going to get it's going to get increasingly difficult to hire good quality talent. So we need purpose aligned businesses, but we also need to make sure that what we think is an effective profit per head um, really is. Like, do you genuine our businesses genuinely getting as much customer lifetime value out of every client as they could be? You know, typically, and I've just run some data on this, but recruitment businesses still only bill 50% of their clients year on year. Um, and, and that data predates the, 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 the pandemic. Um, and also we typically we're typically only getting 30% of, of our potential of our clients potential spend. So there's a huge amount of additional revenue businesses could be getting from the, the relationships they've built without needing to focus purely on new business and sales. Lots of organizations are hiring because they've got lots to deliver on. But should we be holding a higher bar? Should we be actually saying we can't work on that work? You know, is, is there a place where we get to where we not necessarily stop being contingent? So I definitely don't think, you know, people will talk about the contingent model dying and all the rest of it. I'm, I'm not sure that I buy that. But what I do think is we've got to think about are we getting the right kind of returns for the work that we're doing? Um, and does there, is, can this be a watershed moment for that? I suspect people who have been around the industry for longer than I have will say they've heard that all before. But my hope 
is that the a new group of progressive business leaders say, yeah, we cannot continue to work in that way because it's just not profitable enough. I agree. And it's also my hope, by the way, and not just necessarily that that you know aspect of of recruitment, but the whole mentality around it um, of of it becoming. You know, I've almost tried it where I can to change out the word industry and, and make it professional in the same way as, you know, back in the day, the word agency was replaced by consultancy. And it's it's mm -hmm. the, it's a framing around those words that make us feel more empowered, I think, very often. And we do have a unique opportunity because if we're looking at it and we're in agreement and, you know, others are testament to this agreement that actually finding that talent is bloody difficult. Mm -hmm. Where are we going to find it? We're, we're finding it in the next tranche of people coming through those gen... Gen, Gen Zers, they haven't got, they're not coming with any, uh, let's call it baggage. They're not coming with any expectations or any like war stories or scars from from the last twelve, you know, last five years, let alone the last twelve months. And that is the perfect opportunity, isn't it, to start to start these guys on a journey of almost like the next. And this is what I'm quite excited about. It's almost like I don't know recruitment 2.0, but obviously it's recruitment. <laughs> 20.5 or whatever it might be but you get the point this is a new i think the a unique opportunity i think that's what you you kind of alluded to there so let's do this right now we can we've got the chance yeah absolutely and you know what all of that comes back to the fact that business owners outside of the recruitment profession to coin your phrase want that too you know no one is sat there thinking yeah contingent recruitment delivers me exactly the results I want when I when I need to hire so the market wants something different absolutely Ben I'm going to end with the final question because I just love it and it's, it's, it's incidental actually to uh, what which profession you're in um I just like it as a question what would um what the, what would you tell the 16 year old Ben Browning yeah it's a lovely question um so much of course i just think it would probably come back to focus on doing a few things really really well took me definitely took me the last you know almost 30 years to work out that yeah be a, be be a be a master of a couple of really key things and and you know try less to be a jack of all trades so yeah that i think that would be my my thing Fantastic. Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I mean, that was 45 minutes or so that just went like that. And we knew it would be that anyway. Let's face it, when we get together out in a pub or whatever it is we do, I think you could probably sit there all, all day and, and have a chat about what we do and where things are going. But I really hope that the listeners got as much value out of this as I did. Uh, I absolutely, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So um, thank you. Where can people find you? Yeah, so the best place to find me is actually my website. Um, there's another conversation about my LinkedIn presence, which will be changing. Uh, but the website is www.bresonant.co.uk. Wonderful. Well, I'll be putting this in there in the description of, uh, of this podcast anyway, so it will be referenced there. But Ben, thank you so much. Genuinely loved that. Um, really, really good. And I really look forward to catching up with you soon. Yeah, total pleasure, Simon. You too. And um, yeah, look forward to seeing you uh, face to face before too long.